Okay, now, are you, uh, have you found John 13 yet? I haven't. Uh, but John chapter 13. Our text is found there. I'll begin and end reading at verse 1. You follow as I read. John 13 at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, it's been about a month since we completed our study of the book of Ruth. And you may recall that the last word in the book of Ruth is the word, is the name David. Fast forward a couple of thousand years and, and, um, we're now in the New Testament and the focus of this portion of the New Testament is on David's greatest son, Jesus of Nazareth. Guys, if you, as you read through the Gospel of John, uh, as you make progress through the Gospel of John, the shadow of the cross becomes, becomes longer and darker. As you, as you arrive at this section of, of the Gospel, where we are on the eve, the night before his crucifixion, uh, in, in uh, a matter of only a few short hours, 15 to 24 hours or so, Jesus Christ will be suspended between earth and heaven as he dies in the place of his people. Before the sun sets again, Jesus Christ will have breathed his last tortured breath. You know, over the, over the centuries, God's people have really prized this section of the New Testament. I, I guess the reason that it is so prized is because it, it records for us the last few hours of Jesus' life. Um, and, and, and in those hours, you get some of the richest conversations that you find anywhere in the Bible. And just to give you an idea, the, the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John uh, cover the entire ministry of Jesus Christ, about 33 and a half years. Um, these five chapters cover, the por- cover a portion of one night. Twelve chapters covering 33 years, five chapters covering a few hours. Uh, you remember in John 1, uh, 1.14, it says, uh, and the word became flesh, which is a reference to his birth. And then you get 11 and a half chapters telling us about his ministry. Then you come to this section, you got five chapters telling us about the last hours of Jesus' life. The point is that the, 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 the author, John, saw this period as so important that he devoted 25% of his book to, the, to giving us the record of what took place in the last hours of Jesus' life. The disciples had, had, had spent many nights with Jesus, maybe a thousand nights with Jesus, but there would be no night. No night like this one where you find um, recorded some of the uh, most profound uh, discussions and 
things taught that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. All courtesy of four chapters of Scripture that we're going to study. Now, so let's get busy. Verse 1, John chapter 13, verse 1. There are 40 words, 40 words in verse 1, and we could probably pause over every word, but we won't. We won't um, uh, look at every word, but I I do want to take time to focus your attention on four parts of this of this text. Four things that I think are crucial to its understanding. For instance, if you'll notice, it opens like this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, uh, what it's telling you is that all of this rich and profound truth is taking place with the backdrop of the Passover. The Passover is unfolding while this is going on. Now, guys, I, I, I may be insulting you. I hope not, but you probably know what the Passover is already, but let me just give you a quick thumbnail sketch. Um, The Passover is recorded for you in Exodus chapter 12. The second book of the Bible, the 12th chapter in that that book, uh, records the Passover. You may remember that um, Israel is still in bondage in Egypt. God has raised up Moses. Moses is is tasked with going and getting them out of there. God sends these ten awful plagues on Egypt, the last one of which is the one where the death angel is sent into Egypt and every firstborn... Um, of the Egyptians is, is killed by the death angel. Israel is told, get inside your houses, paint the doorpost with the blood from an unblemished lamb, hide behind that blood, and when the death angel arrives and he sees that blood, he will pass over. <laughs> but just imagine, or try to, what Passover must have meant to Jesus Christ. Thousands of annual celebrations, millions of lambs slaughtered, oceans of lambs' blood spilled, all designed to point to him, the lamb who is about to be slain The Passover has reached its zenith. There will be no more need of a Passover once this lamb is slain. Gang, can you you relate somehow to the emotions and the excitement that must have engulfed him as he walked through those city streets in Jerusalem and watched all the citizens scurrying about and trying to make their final preparations for Passover, knowing that he too was in his final preparations for Passover. You you know, can't you just see him walking through those city streets and watching people scurrying about and thinking all of this is about me and they don't know it. You know, at one point in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 6, he said something that was really offensive. Uh, he, uh, his audience didn't like it. They, he said in John 6, he said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they didn't like that. And they left him because they didn't like such, such severe talk as that. And yet in a matter of hours, some of those same people who heard that will have lamb's meat between their teeth. All of which 
was supposed to point to him. Can you imagine what went through his mind when he heard off in the distance the bleating of a lamb's throat that was being slit? Because as the text says, ladies and gentlemen, we we have now arrived at his hour. You know, there, were, there are several places in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, it's not my hour. He says that to his mother in John 2. He just says it in John 7. He says it in John 8. It's not my hour. It's not my hour. It's not my hour. But now, it is his hour. Uh, there was a statement by, in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus has set his face as flint to come to Jerusalem. Well, he's there. He's there now, and his hour has arrived. It's the very hour for which he came. Not to Jerusalem. At the very hour for which he came to the planet. Guys, um, all of this commotion that he's watching going on in the city of Jerusalem, all of it was to be about him. And all of those people, they didn't know it. They didn't know what a cataclysmic hour had arrived. You know, one other thing that I'd like for you to see in the text, but I'll just speak about it briefly. It's, a, it's an interesting way of talking. He says um, his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. It doesn't say should depart from this world and go to heaven. He departs from this world and go to the Father. Uh, people don't talk like that. You don't talk like that unless you're God. Jesus is about to go back to the Father, the very Father who is about to turn his back on him. The Father who, once he does turn his back on him, will evoke this blood-curdling cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus knew the answer to that question. Which all brings us, ladies and gentlemen, to what I would consider to be the heart and soul of the text. In fact, I would consider it to be the heart and soul of redemption. It's these words where he said, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Gang, all that Jesus does and all that Jesus has done can be traced back to love. Love is the great summary of his person and his work. And that is a theme that will be repeated in this section over and over and over again. Notice the text tells us who he loved. He loved his own. The the ones that the Father had given him and the ones that the Spirit had drawn to him and the the ones that the Spirit continues to draw to him. Um, James Boyce said it this way. He said, God has has done some things for all men, but he's done all things for some men. He's done all things for his own.
The world loves its own, and Jesus Christ loves his own. They are his personal possessions. The way that Jesus Christ views you and me is that we are his own. You know, but ladies and gentlemen, this is a, this is a pretty difficult text to preach, and for this reason... We have very meager concepts of what love is. We've got these funny, silly ideas. And you can see most of them on Valentine's Day. We have gutted this word. We, um, we've come to the conclusion that sure, love, yeah, he loves. He ought to love somebody like me. We deserve his love. And so I stand up here and I tell you that he loves his own. And we say, yeah, yeah, I've already heard that. It's kind of like the Geico commercial. Yeah, yeah. Everybody knows that. You may know of it in terms of the way love is defined at Valentine's. But this, this is altogether different, ladies and gentlemen. He, um, it seems that the one thing that he wanted them to know before he left them is that he loved them. You know, guys, um, these guys are scared spitless. He's about to leave them. This, um, the one comfort that they have is that he loves them. Um, he's going to tell them that over and over and over again in this section of Scripture. It's the one thing that he wants his people to know that they are loved. You know, my friend, I can assure you that the one thing that you're going to want to know when you come to the final hours of your life is that you are loved. The text even tells us how he loved them. He loved his own and he loved them to the end. The gang, uh, at this point, I, I've got to be a bit of an academic. I know you don't care for that, and I don't either, really, but, but it helps understanding of the text. Guys, in the Greek language, of course, which the New Testament was written in Greek, in the Greek language, there are seven or eight words that can be translated end, E-N-D. For instance, in Matthew 28, when it says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. The Greek word there is suntaleo. That's not the word that's found here. It's a different Greek word. It's a much rarer Greek word. It's used so much more infrequently in the New Testament as the other words that are translated in. The word here is telos. He loved them to the telos, which is a word from which we get our English word teleology. It's a word that has to do with design. It has to do with unto completion or unto perfection. 
It's a, it's a word that has to do with fullness. It's not as if Jesus is saying, now listen guys, I'm 33 years old and I have loved you all of my life and here I am at the end of it and I've loved you to the end. That's not what he's saying. He's telling them, I've loved you. I've loved you into perfect. I've loved you to perfection. I've loved you unto completion. His public ministry is over. It would have been natural for them to conclude that his ministry to them was over. He's leaving. We're staying. That's it. No, no. No, no. They are about to witness this one that they love die, not fully realizing that that death was by design. By leaving them, it didn't mean that he was done with them. One of the things that he's about to tell them later on in this section is about the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is the provision for maintaining uh, Jesus' work in them and maintaining his commitment to them. But that's going to come later. For now, what he wants us to know is that he's loved us to perfection. That all of these events that are about to unfold, and all of these things that are, that are described in these four chapters, they are all the result of his loving them to completion. The thing that he wants them to know and he'll say over and over again is that I have loved you to the telos. There's no termination of his love for his people. If he ever sets his love on you, he will love you to the end. Guys, I am safe eternally. Not because I hold on to him. I am safe because he holds on to me. Guys, the truth that is being taught in 13.1 is the ground for all assurance that any of us have ever had. It's the ground for the great doctrine of eternal security. It is the ground of those wonderful truths, not my performance. This is the ground of our assurance, not our performance. I have a preacher friend who told me a story about a woman in his church one time and this, um, this woman had been thoroughly engaged in everything that went on in the church. She was there all the time. She, she taught Sunday school. She was the president of the woman in the church. And she was, but she was older now and she was dying. She was in the hospital and she was, she was about to die. So the pastor goes to pay her a visit. And she looks at her pastor and she says, Oh, pastor, I wonder, have I done enough? No! None of us have done enough. That's not 
gospel, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel is he has done enough. He's loved us. And he's loved us to the end. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, we get ourselves in so many spiritual quagmires because we're confused about that very point. We think, okay, well, I've been doing pretty good here. I'm performing pretty well. I feel pretty loved and safe. And then inevitably... We don't perform well. Then what? Guys, think about this. Jesus knows. He knows full well that these men before whom he's trying to display all of this, he knows full well that they in a matter of hours are going to turn their backs on him and run like scared puppies. It's them. It's them that he wants to know. That they are loved. Because how else will they face their failures? And tell me, ladies and gentlemen, how else will I face mine? How will I face my own impending death? Knowing he has loved me and he has loved me to the end. Even when my sin bubbles up to the top, which is pretty frequently, he does not abandon me. He does not withdraw from me. He doesn't dump me. When his love might least be expected, He loves me to the end. Guys, even our sin, whose bitter price he's about to pay, even that does not interrupt his love for his own. Those he loves at first, he loves at last. Oh, Dr. Young, I would love to believe that if only it were true. But how do you know that that is true? Because this text tells me it is. And then, then add this. Even now, on the verge of his own sufferings, when he might have been excused to, to think about his own problems, instead of being consumed with his own problems, his heart turns towards, not his hour, his heart turns towards his own. 
It's a love that's never exhausted. It never, it never runs out of long suffering. He, he never vacillates. When I sin, he loves me. When I deny him, he loves me. When I, when I am indifferent, he loves me. How do you know that? Because this text tells me it is so. And and by the way, the very things that I just mentioned about sinning against him and denying him and being indifferent towards him, these guys did those very things. And he wants them to know that he loves them. And he loves them to the end. If he ever sets his heart upon you, ladies and gentlemen, if you are ever a part of his own, he never takes it back. He does not love me today and hate me tomorrow. Why? Why is it that my sin does not drive him from me? That's the way that we operate. The gospel assures us, ladies and gentlemen, that that's not the way that he operates. The love of Christ to sinners. Listen, the love of Christ to undeserving sinners is the very marrow of the gospel. That he should love us at all and love us before we loved him. That is the message that we have for the world. But one would think that eventually he would get fed up with my sin and then finally lose his patience with me like I used to do with my daughters. But that's not the kind of love that's being described here, ladies and gentlemen. It's a steadfast, loyal, unchangeable love, what the Old Testament calls has said. And that unchangeable love is the one that extends to the end. He died, but his love towards his own is undying. Guys, this is a name that you won't, I don't think you'll find familiar. Maybe some of you will. It's, a, it's the name Carl Bart. Karl Barth um, was a Swiss theologian. He died in, I think, 1964 or, or thereabouts. Um, he was considered by some, I'm not sure I'm one of them, but he's considered to be the greatest theologian of the 20th century. Uh, he was a good friend of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's. Bonhoeffer loved him. He was part of the opposition to Hitler, although he lived in Switzerland and thus didn't have to face Hitler. But Karl Barth is considered the, the finest theologian of the 20th century. On his deathbed, his students gather around, gathered around one, one last time to say goodbye to their, to their beloved professor. And while they were there, they, they turned to Dr. Bart, and, and one student had one more question for him. He said, Dr. Bart, of all of the great, mysterious, marvelous, profound truths that you have been dealing with all of your life, what is the most profound truth of all? And without hesitation, Karl Bart said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so.
Guys, one more story and I'm done. When, when I was in seminary, when Susie and I went, by the way, my wife is on her way to Washington, D.C. to take care of our newest grandchild, number 11. Ah, take that. Um, uh, but that's why she's not among us this morning. Uh, but um, when Susie and I were in seminary, uh, we got a job in a little Presbyterian church in Louisville, Mississippi. I worked as a youth director for three and a half years while I was in seminary and loved it. Loved it. Just great relationships. Uh, we would go up all summer, and then on every weekend we'd go, and then I'd go to school in the week, during the week. It was just a wonderful experience. <clears throat> and when it was done, when it was over, um, uh, they threw us a party the last Sunday we were to be there, and we were heading off to our first call, which was in Ocala, Florida. And, and uh, they gave us a party and gave us sweet little gifts on the way out as a, you know, kind of going away gifts. But as the little party was coming to an end, the youth themselves gave us one last gift. They sang to us. And they sang a hymn that they knew was my favorite. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. But that's the first stanza. Do you know what the last stanza says? It goes like this. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Listen. Love so amazing so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Folks, what the songwriter is saying and what the, one of the things that this text is teaching is that the thing that motivates us to godly living is not dread, it's not duty, it's not law. It's love. Go feast on that. John 13, 1. And your life will change. knowing more and more that he loved his own and he loved us to the end. Heavenly Father, might you enable your people to drink just a little bit more deeply of what's being stated in that one verse. Would you, would you help us to get the difference between what Hollywood sells and what Jesus gives? Would you enable us to know more fully of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on our behalf?
as our substitute. That the gospel is not about how well we perform. It's about how well he performed in paying every farthing of my debt. Father, if you brought people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, who still think this is all rather odd, would you first cause them to see their sin and then show them the Savior who is altogether lovely? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.